Luke 20. Story from a few years back, an Oklahoma woman was driving on the highway and leaving a rest stop. She noticed as she left the rest stop, a a trucker uh, quickly jumped in his rig and kind of almost like as soon as she got in the car, he looked at her and then and then jumped in his rig and kind of started like chasing her, it seemed. And it kind of made her uncomfortable, this big semi, you know, following this lady. And so she kind of put the pedal to the metal thinking, I'm gonna lose this truck. But the truck sped faster and faster trying to keep up with her. It was was obvious, something weird was going on. And so she kind of freaked out and like broke speeds over hundred miles an hour trying to get away from this big rig. But the big rig was trying desperately to keep up. And and she, she got so nervous, she finally, pulled off quickly on an exit and zipped into like a little minute mark and just jumped out of her car and ran in to, you know, to what she perceived was safety. Um, and the trucker comes into this big uh, the rig there into the little mini mark parking lot. And, um, and he jumped out and she said, the trucker wants to give, and she was totally freaking out. Well, the, the story was actually, the trucker saw an armed guy jump in the back of her trunk in the, in the rest stop and hide, was hiding in there. And then she took off and he knew that he was there. So she, he went and, and rescued her from this armed guy in the back of her truck. Uh, so things are not always what they seem. Uh, and I've, I've found that sometimes we can make judgments and it's really an interesting thing how we're quick to make judgments, but we don't always know the full story. And that's something to be careful of. When you're reading the Bible, you know, we gotta, we gotta kind of look at the whole story. I'm amazed how many people, uh, you know, read bits and pieces of the Bible, you know, hit and miss. But when you miss the context, you don't really know the whole story. Um, no one perhaps was more misunderstood than Jesus himself. Um, you know, uh, we know we know now in retrospect why Jesus came, what he came to do. You know, John three seventeen, for God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That, that was why Jesus came. Um, you know, uh, Luke 19, 10, we saw last week, for, uh, see, Jesus talked about the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's why Jesus came. Um, and some people think, oh, Jesus is coming after me, or God's mad at me, or he wants to do me in. A lot of people think the man upstairs, the cosmic killjoy, wants to crush me, the sinner. But it's actually the opposite. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as we see Jesus uh, making his way to the cross here in John or Luke chapter 20 and, and really watching kind of this narrative get closer to Jerusalem, one of the things that I'm finding is just how sobering it is. These, these people who are rejecting Jesus. And um, it's such a shocker. You know, when you, when you know who Jesus is, uh, it makes the story painful. All these religious leaders, rejection, rejection. They, they're trying to kill Jesus by this point. They're looking for ways to do away with God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, what, a, what an amazing narrative this really is. Um, by the way, uh, interesting bit of information as we get into Luke chapter 20. Um, as we know, this is, this is an interesting time uh, frame. Uh, in the Old Testament, the 14th day of Nisan, uh, no, we're not talking Dotson uh, for you old people, but uh, it was a month of the Jewish calendar. In Exodus chapter 12, um, you know, it was all about, you know, the Passover. Uh, you know, the ancient Passover was, was for the Jews kind of the biggest deal, the Passover. Um, but on the, from the 10th day of Nisan to the 14th day of Nisan, does anybody remember what were they supposed to do in those few days before the actual celebration of the Passover? What were they doing from the 10th to the 14th, anybody remember? They were inspecting the lamb that would be used to be slain. Um, And that's kind of interesting, you know, inspect the lamb before the sacrifice. And you know, if you've read the narrative there, the lamb was supposed to be without spot or without blemish. It was to be a sacrificial lamb. They would, you know, then do the Passover where they'd slay the lamb, uh, you know, uh, cook it appropriately for the Passover and spread the blood on the doorposts, you know the story, uh, and on the sap and, and uh, the death, the spirit of death would pass over the, each household that had the blood on the door. What an amazing picture that is. But the thing that's kind of important for you to understand is they were choosing their lamb, uh, the 10th to the 14th. That's exactly where we are in the story with the lamb. Jesus Christ, the inspection of the lamb, the 10th through the 14th, if you would. Um, And if Jesus passes the examination, the test, 
then he is the one who's the worthy lamb. It reminds me really of John the Baptist when he said, you know, he sees Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Um, and so what are the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, um, what are these guys, the chief priests, what are they all doing? They're inspecting the lamb, which is kind of interesting. They're, but what they're doing is they're trying to find fault and blemish, but, what they, but they will not find in, in Jesus any fault, no error. And that's one of the things, uh, Luke chapter 20, we're gonna establish. They're inspecting, the religious leaders are inspecting, even scrutinizing and even being very critical. But, <clears throat> but the lamb, the lamb, Jesus is without spot, Remember um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I love that about our, our lamb. Uh, Jesus was the spotless, perfect lamb. That's an important part of the narrative of Jesus because apart from that, we would be doomed if Jesus wasn't the perfect spotless lamb. So we pick up the story right here in Luke chapter 20 and the inspection continues, verse one. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him saying, tell us by what authority dost thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? Now, uh, who are these people? The chief priests are here, the scribes and the elders. So um, let's break this down. It's good for you to know who these people are. Um, they're the leaders of Israel, but they have different capacities. The chief priests were um, basically more politicians than they were priests of, like you'd picture in the Old Testament, priesthood of Aaron. Um, this, this had been centuries of perversion of what was supposed to be the priesthood. Now it was more of a, a paid off political position. They were, they were uh, paid off hirelings. It's like they were there in it for the, the power, the prestige, and also for the, the money. Um, the two chief priests at the time of Jesus would be Annas uh, and Caiaphas. Annas was sort of semi-retired. Caiaphas was the seemingly the larger and in charger kind of of the two priests. But uh, they would be the ones ultimately who would crucify Jesus. Um, isn't it something that the priest would sacrifice the lamb if you would, uh, for the sins. But it's, it's such a more cynical thing than that. But so the chief priests, they're supposed to be the religious leaders, but they're more political leaders. The scribes were um, in ancient Israel, were learned men who uh, their business was to uh, study the law, transcribe it, uh, and write commentaries on it. And, um, you know, it was, I think, originally meant to be a good thing. They, they took great care to um, make sure the scriptures were not perverted um, in their earlier times of, of scribe, scribedom. <laughs> As they were scribes, they were trying to make sure that it was carefully transcribed. But things turned horribly wrong when man-made traditions started entering the mix. The scribes started saying, we're gonna transcribe, but we're also gonna say, boy, you better do this. If you're gonna do this part of the, the Holy Scriptures, then you also have to do this. And they started adding man's man-made traditions that started to overshadow God's word with a sort of a, kind of a pretense of holiness, uh, but it was actually uh, self-serving piety, uh, not real piety, uh, sort of a poser holiness. And it would sort of eventually replace true godliness. The scribes whose stated goal was to preserve the word actually nullified the word by the traditions they handed down. And Jesus talked about that. Remember in Mark, Jesus said, you've, you've you know, pretty much you know, canceled out the scriptures with your dumb traditions of men. And the scribes were largely responsible for that. But they were known to be scholarly. The scribes were uh, scholarly, but they had, had become somewhat corrupt as well. The third group listed here are the elders. These are the older men, well-respected men, um, and representing the families of Israel. Uh, there is a fourth group, uh, and sometimes the Sadducees, you might uh, um, include them in the group of the Sanhedrin or the chief priests, some people do, but more on the Sadducees later. But uh, these three groups are the ones that we start out with. Now, now, why are they coming with this question? By what authority do you do these things? Well, if you remember last week, Jesus had just turned the tables in the temple. Um, I find it interesting, don't you? I, I wish I could, you know, get that DVD or, uh, you know, watch it on you, Heaven Tube or whatever. Um, you know, uh, wouldn't it be something to see Jesus going into the temple and start turning tables 
and make a whip of small cores. Whoosh. I mean, this is, this is brutal what Jesus does, but he's right, of course. He's right to do what he's doing. But I find it interesting, nobody challenges him. None of the people stand up and say, hey, what do you think you're doing? Like Jesus goes in there, cleans house, and nobody messes with him. Um, that's amazing, at least in the moment. Now is sort of the reaction to what he did in chapter 19. That's why these guys, I, I believe when they say, by what authority do you do these things? They've had more than 10 minutes to think about what just happened. And so this is their sort of attacking, by what authority do you do these things? What? I think the gospel message that he's preaching, but also the tables that he turned uh, there in the temple. And, um, and so, you know, these guys, um, they're, they're gonna try to, try to trap him, trick him. By what authority? Who gave you this authority? And now, now, if Jesus says, my own authority, which he could have said that and been correct, wouldn't you agree? But in their little pea brains, they thought if he said, by my authority, well, then uh, they've got him. They, they, they would have tossed him out saying, look at this guy's self-proclaimed authority over all of us. Um, if he would have said, by God's authority, then the Romans would have a problem with them uh, and deal with them. So th they felt like they had him. That, this is their trickery. Hey, let's, let's get him with an unanswerable question. Uh, you know, and, and so they think they've got him. Not a great idea. The only authority that mattered to these guys, by the way, were that was their own, their own authority. Um, question for you to think about, for me to think about, what authority do you submit yourself to? Uh, we live in a culture that does not like authority. We've been taught to buck authority and to um, resist authority. But the Bible actually teaches that we're, to, we're supposed to submit to authority. In fact, Ephesians 5.21 says we're supposed to submit ourselves um, one to another in the fear of God. <laughs> That's a pretty big, uh, you know, submission. Um, but to be submitted one to another. These religious leaders con consider themselves to be authority, but who did they submit to? Um, kind of no one. I think that's true of an individual or even an organization. We need to be careful to not say we're the boss of ourselves. Um, uh, ultimately, uh, Christ is the authority in our lives. But if you have no one that's your authority, uh, then you're kind of in a vulnerable, dangerous place, whether you know it or not. I've been interested to watch this over the years and how people that sort of are, are really resistant to the idea of authority, uh, it never works out for them. It never does. Uh, it might work for a while. You can fake people out. You can, you know, put on a, a face and uh, like you got it all together. But eventually uh, you need to be one who submits to authority and has accountability with other believers. Uh, I think that's so important. I've seen that in the church kind of in an interesting way where, um, you know, there's, I, I could tell you hundreds of stories. I remember this one couple years ago, the, um, they would come, uh, I'm not gonna tell you all the details, but um, the, the, they would come into the church doing their own thing during services. Um, it's amazing what people do during services. Uh, and uh, I always kind of marvel at what people think is okay. Uh, like we'll have guys on Sunday morning sitting in the front row, tossing their baby up in the air, you know, thinking it's great. And the whole congregation's going, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, um, or, you know, and if we talk to a mother, you know, she's, her baby's uh, doing cartwheels out in the, you know, d during a Bible study time and stuff. And, you know, some people are like, well, that's just a baby. Well, you know, it's, it's a little tricky when you're, uh, when you're in an adult service that goes on for over an hour, um, you know, and, and, and it's distracting all the moms and grandmas. They're going, oh, how's the baby over here? And they're not actually any part of the Bible study or the teaching at all. Like, I, I see that. But man, if you talk to that mother, by what authority do you talk to me? I'm the mother of this child. Right? Well, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And, and man, we have a great place for your baby and we have nursery workers and there's a, even a parent's room back over here and you can watch it. But to, to uh, you know, do this, in, it's kind of distracting and it's causing trouble. Of course, when the baby, you know, uh, threw the ball, hit, hit the guy in the head and it's just kind of not working out, you know, ringing the keys all, all during the service. Um, we've had so many angry parents, you know, but th those are parents that, you know, they're gonna learn someday. They'll learn uh, that authority is kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, they, I've noticed they won't get it in church and, you know, they'll leave either, huh, that church hates children. Uh, why do we have thousands and thousands of children? We, we love children at Eighth Creek. That's why we don't torture them and make them sit in the sanctuary. <laughs> it's hard enough as an adult uh, to sit in the sanctuary for an hour, hour and a half. 
Um, so anyway, it's just a, it's just a worldview and, and some people don't like authority. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, we used to try to stress it a little more, but now we just realize people are gonna go out angry and they don't agree with us. Um, but, um, but that's gonna be their loss, it really is. And I, I used to kind of be more offended by that kind of behavior. Now I'm actually learning to be more grieved when I see people who have zero uh, submission to authority. Uh, it's gonna hurt them. Their life is not gonna go well with that. So I hope you're not that person. But anyway, that's the scribes, the Pharisees, the uh, religious leaders, the chief priests. They are the authority. They, they don't care about anybody else uh, or what anybody else has to say. Well. It goes on here in verse three, Jesus, verse three, he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing. You know, their question was by what authority do you, or whose authority? And he says, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Now, if you were with us in the previous gospels, uh, this is familiar to you. We've, we've been through this before, but he's asking them a question. I love it how he kind of throws it back at them. They think that they're asking him the impossible question that's gonna get him into trouble. He's asking them a, a question that's gonna get them in even worse trouble. Uh, because John the Baptist, uh, well, in fact, let's read on. It kind of explains itself here, verse five. And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, then he will say, why then believed ye not him or him not? But, and if we say of men, all the people will stone us for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. You didn't answer my question. I'm not gonna answer yours. Now, now, now this is great um, because um, what we're starting to see here is the Lord's approach um, amazing. I, I, I hope we can learn from Jesus, the way he handles the scrutiny, the critics, the haters. Um, maybe there's some lessons to learn for us. And, and that's why I think it's always value to kind of observe the Lord's uh, wise approach to these dastardly questions. And I'd like to show you how he, he's gonna put on a defense uh, to the attack and maybe even go a little more on the offense. Um, how does Jesus answer them? Um, he's gonna point out their own flaws and their own double standards, which I think is kind of an interesting tactic. Um, let me show you, he's gonna use three specific tactics here uh, in this chapter. Uh, he's gonna ask a question, number one. Um, he's gonna give a parable, number two, and he's gonna quote an Old Testament prophecy. These are gonna be his tactics and we're gonna sort of break this down. So um, the first question that he asked is the John the Baptist question. And why does he ask this question? It's, it's basically to point out their past rejection. They, they rejected John, John the Baptist. Isn't it funny that the people were so sure that John the Baptist was a prophet? So sure were they that they'd be willing to stone the chief priests and the scribes uh, with rocks if they said John the Baptist wasn't a prophet. Like the, the, John the Baptist must have been somewhat convincing, wouldn't you say? Um, but they, because their own authority, that's what kept them away from believing John the Baptist is they didn't want someone who was speaking things that were sort of, you know, um, you know trumping their words and their wisdom. Uh, and so they chose to reject John the Baptist and they knew it. They knew that they couldn't, they couldn't answer Jesus' Jesus's question. So um, reason number one, uh, you, know, uh, you know, their past rejection of John the Baptist. Um, when they rejected him, by the way, they were already rejecting Jesus because John the Baptist's whole ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus, the Lamb of God. So um, that's kind of an important thing. So number one, he asks a question and he points out their past rejection of, of John the Baptist, ultimately rejecting Jesus. Number two, he's gonna give us a, a parable um, and point out their present rebellion. That's verses nine through 16. Let's read. It says, then began he to speak to certain people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. Now, by the way, this language is very familiar to the Jews for, for two reasons. One is the vineyard was their thing. They would lease out land, you know, a rich vineyard landowner 
was, this is what they did all the time. They would, they would uh, lease their land to the local husbandmen or farmers, and they would then tend it, but the, the, the landowner would then receive a percentage of their work because it was his land. That was the way they did it. The owner of the land wasn't always the farmer in those days. Uh, he had other people do that. And Jesus uses this all the time. So the first thing is just a normal thing that they would all familiar, be familiar with. I love Jesus's parables for very practical, especially if you lived in the first century. To us, the leasing out farmland and stuff, it's not something we do every day, but it was for them. So this is very common. But secondarily, um, this was an image of the Old Testament that the prophets used about Israel all the time as being a vineyard. Can, can you keep your finger here and flip back to Isaiah with me? I want to show you kind of one of the key places. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Isaiah the prophet uses a similar imagery of a, of a vineyard. Um, and so, so to the Jews, this, this is very familiar territory, what Jesus is talking about. I want you to see this. Um, it's Isaiah 5, verse 1. There the prophet says, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked at it that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Um, that word wild grapes is kind of interesting because if you look it up in the, in the um, Hebrew text, the Hebrew word is biushim, which means stink berries. Uh, it grew stink berries. Uh, now, uh, those are poisonous, by the way. So they're like, they're like sour, poisonous berries that grew instead of this, the grapes, wild grapes. And verse three, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, um, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste and shall, it uh, shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they reign not on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant land. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And then, and then uh, the prophet goes on to the six woes against Israel. You know, verse eight, woe unto them that join house to house, uh, which is kind of a covetous thing that he goes into. Verse 11, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, um, you know, uh, looking for, you know, pleasure is the idea. Uh, uh, verse 18, woe unto them that draw iniquity. Verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine. Uh, do any of those woes sound familiar uh, to today? Uh, we see it all over today. This is the world today. Uh, read the woes of, but, but sadly, the Jews, this is, this is, the, uh, this is some serious woeage uh, from God um, that we're seeing here. Six woes because he plants this beautiful vineyard, vineyard makes the wine press, has the fence, the garden. Everything's perfectly beautiful. Um, it's, it, what, what the Lord's saying there is, man, I set you up for success. God gave them uh, everything that he'd promised them but instead they grew up rebellious and poisonous and uh, stink berries, a bunch of stink berries. That's all they were. Um, and it was the fault of the uh, people of Israel. And that's why the Lord says, um, you know, the vineyard is the Lord of hosts, the house of Israel. Uh, and, um, and, and, and then he says, woe unto you. So the reason I, I point out this passage from Isaiah is because um, these are the indictments against Israel for a long time. Jesus is using the exact same imagery of Isaiah the prophet, really, of Israel as a vineyard. This isn't new to them. Uh, it's kind of new to us, but it's not new to them. So let's go back now to what Jesus is saying here in Luke 20, and we're gonna see what he's, uh, what he's gonna say about this. So after verse nine, he says, you know, the man planted a vineyard, leased it to husbandmen, went off into a far country for a long time. Well, verse 10. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. That was normal. But the husbandman beat him 
and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Um, the progression of wickedness is a little bit missed in the English text. Um, there's some interesting Greek words that are, Jesus employs here in the original text. Let me just show you those for fun. Um, in each of the three uh, servants that were sent, it gets progressively worse. The Greek word for servant one is diro, which, um, which uh, means to beat, thrash, might, or scourge. Um, the second servant uh, is um, atimazo, which means to dishonor, to insult, and to treat with contempt. And then the third uh, person is traumatizo, which uh, means lasting shock as a result of emotionally disturbing experience or personal uh, or physical injury. Um, so it's, it's like uh, each servant was consecutively treated worse and worse. And, and um, you know, one of the things, the, the more we sin, uh, our sin gets progressively worse. Um, it's better to repent early before you start getting into stuff that gets worse and worse, but it gets worse. Check out verse 13. Um, then, uh, verse 13, said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Um, do you follow the logic of that? Are these very smart people? Um, dumb, dumb. Uh, think about this. I, like, but really, when you think about sinning against God, how dumb that is. Um, and our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. So, uh, you know, as Gentiles, we can say, yeah, the Jews, you know, in their Israeli vineyard here, look at these scoundrels, you know. But we do the same thing. When we sin against God, we are treating the Son of God with contempt, really, uh, sinning against the Lord, uh, which is something we should be sobered up about. Um, so here's the, the, you know, the people say, let's kill him. Uh, then, then, then we'll have the inheritance. Um, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Verse 15. Um, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Like, that's a horrible story. But it was about them. They weren't recognizing really yet that he was talking about them. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, this is a real story because it's Israel's story, their story. Despised and rejected Jesus. We will not have this man rule over us. And they crucified him. Um, now, before we're hard on the Jews, remember, we crucified Christ. Uh, the Romans crucified Jesus. The Jews crucified Jesus. All the Gentiles, everyone that's ever sinned uh, has crucified Jesus on the cross. And we are all to blame. So the vineyard equals Israel. Um, the husbandmen, the workers, are the religious leaders. Um, they were to take care of the, the land or the people. Uh, when God came to collect, they shunned them. Um, and they beat, uh, they, who, are the, who are the servants that came in this story as far as the parallel? The prophets, the Lord sent the prophets um, and, they, and they, you know, killed and stoned, cut in half some of the prophets, uh, maimed them, dismissed them, ignored them. The prophets of the Old Testament had a sorry plight. It was not an easy job being an Old Testament prophet. But the Lord of the vineyard is God himself. Um, and the Lord of the vineyard's son is Jesus. So Jesus here is foretelling his death that he's about to do on the cross. He's, he's just setting the stage. Uh, they don't even know how real this illustration is gonna be uh, carried out, but he, Jesus would be killed by the religious leaders. Um, notes about the Jewish law that you should know about. If a property is known to be abandoned or if the owner dies without the next of kin, the property is then up, to, up for grabs for anyone. Um, that's the rule of law, of Jewish law. So that's kind of interesting as it relates to this. Um, you might say, well, that's dumb. Um, the Lord of the vineyard is still alive, so um, they wouldn't get away with it anyway, uh, you might say. And I would say, exactly. It was a stupid idea, just like sin is a stupid idea. Well, so this is the parable. Jesus uh, is, is now, you know, approaching these critics, cynics who want to kill him and or all this. He starts out with a, a question to point out their rejection, a previous rejection. He gives a parable to point out their present rebellion, that they're rejecting, they're in the act of rejecting the Son of God. And then the third component is he quotes an Old Testament prophecy to point out their future ruin, which he already did in the parable. The parable kind of predicts their ruin, 
but he's gonna even dial that in more in verse 17. It says, and he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Uh, hello, the last parable is about you too. Uh, like, like both parables are about you. But this one, I think he's talking about it. Well, anyway, we... we we saw this on Sunday and I love, I love Wednesdays, you know, because it gives us a little bit of the context of what we studied on, on Sunday. But um, remember, Jesus is referring to an Old Testament prophecy. That's why this point number three, he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy. Does anybody remember what, what scripture he's quoting? Yeah, Psalm 118, 22. We looked at this on Sunday and it's in your margin right here. And that's important. I love how Jesus uh, would quote scripture from Old Testament only reinforcing everything. Like, like um, they didn't really understand Psalm 118 until Jesus brought it home for them saying, don't you understand that, that prophecy about the stone that the builders rejected? That's me, I'm the stone. And the builders are the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. And, um, and they're starting to say, I think this is about us. Now, one of the things that scriptures does do well when you read the, the Bible, the, like, like um, you can almost see these people hearing Jesus speak the word and then, then they're going, I think he's talking about us. Have you ever known that that, noticed that that's what the word does for you? You're reading the Bible along happily and all of a sudden, wait a minute. <laughs> I think that's about like me, you know? Um, people have a, a hard time sometimes letting the Bible be uh, relatable to themselves. Uh, the Bible's just a bunch of old stories. Um, but I don't believe they're reading their Bible correctly. We can see ourselves uh, in the Bible. Now, um, the new believer, the, the young, more immature believer will see themselves in all the great Bible. I remind myself of David <laughs> fighting mighty Goliath. Uh, I, you know, or, you know, Elijah fighting the prophets of Baal. That's me, <clears throat> you know, like the immature Christian loves to, to um, you know, think that we're doing all the good stuff. <clears throat> the more mature you become in the Bible, you'll start to see yourself more in the unflattering characters of the Bible. Um, and it's been hard, it's hard. I, I've had to realize uh, when I read the woman caught in adultery, uh, that's me. Brad, are you saying you're a woman? Um, <laughs> I'm saying I'm just like the woman who was caught in adultery. I'm that, like that's a picture of me. Uh, I'm the sinner who deserves to be stoned to death. Um, but Jesus has been gracious and says, go your way and sin no more. Um, you know, I'm the prodigal son, or maybe more accurate, I'm the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Um, do you remember what James says? This, I love the scripture, uh, uh, James 1, 23 through 24. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Uh, that's a King Jimmy way of saying, looked in a mirror. For he beholds himself, takes a look at his face, and then goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. Um, when you read the Bible, one of the things the Bible, you know, I love all the idioms of the Bible. The Bible, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I love that. Thy word, the water of the word, which cleanses, you know, Jesus washes this church in the water of the word. So there's all these great, beautiful idioms of the scriptures. One of the idioms of the Bible is it's a mirror. And when you read the Bible, if you read it carefully and with wisdom, you'll start to see your face right there in the Bible. And you'll realize that's talking about me. And sometimes it's not the most flattering of stories. It's the ones where I'm the sinner, I'm the rebellious person. Um, you know, it's easy uh, to also superimpose all the evils on the Jews. One of the things the replacement theologians do, remember the people who believe God's done with the Jews and there's no future for the Jews and, you know, the church has replaced Israel. Horrible theology, by the way, horrible. Um, but, um, but and, and, and biblically easy to show how erroneous it is, if you ask me. But um, if you read like my King James, my King James is, you know, the 1611 Cambridge cameo, uh, which I love this. I love this. I've been using this since I was a kid, basically, this Bible, but not this particular one. But, um, but, but what's hilarious is you read all the subtitles at the top uh, of each page. Um, the, these King James writers were kind of replacement theologians, which I understand it maybe 500 years ago a little better. 
than because Israel didn't exist as a nation, so they had a propensity to believe God's done with the Jews. I understand it, it doesn't make it right. But you'll, you'll notice, it's really funny, uh, if you have an old Bible like mine, it'll say, you know, when, when there's curses in the Old Testament, they'll say curses upon the children of Israel. And then you read, and then you read some blessing, blessings to the church of Jesus Christ. And they just cherry pick. All the good stuff goes to the church on your top of the line and all your horrible things go to the Jews. Um, that's something you should watch out for. Um, and some people read their Bible that way. The curses are everybody else and the blessings are on me. Um, but, uh, but I think we have to read the Bible more carefully and the more mature believer starts to see themselves like in a mirror. And if you've got, you know, if you've got mustard on your face, uh, you looked in the mirror like, huh, and then you walk away and forget that you have mustard on your face, you have only yourself to blame. Uh, that's what the Bible is basically saying here. The religious leaders don't wanna accept that what they're doing is wrong and sinful. Um, if they would have repented, I believe, Jesus would have been ready to forgive them. But they were not, they only dug in deeper. Um, so back to our list here, um, you know, the religious leaders sin. Their past rejection, um, their present rebellion, and their future ruin was all spoken of by Jesus. And we did a whole study on Luke 20, verses 19, uh, 17 through 19, if you missed that on Sunday. Um, be broken before the Lord, not crushed by the Lord. That's a better choice. The stone, the rock of our salvation. Well, now a new question comes up in verse 20. Um, and it says in verse 20, and they watched him and sent forth spies um, uh, which should feign themselves ju uh, just men that they might take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the power and the authority of the governor. And so they asked him saying, Master, we know that thou, art, thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, um, but teachest the way of God truly. Now pause, does anybody smell something up here? Oh man, flattery is ugly. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, a flatterer never seems absurd. The flattered always takes his word. Um, when you're flat, um, you, know, uh, you know, flattery is to a friend is like a dog is to a wolf. You know, it's like, it's like um, you know, we love to hear words, but Jesus would see right through this. Um, be careful for flattery. Jesus uh, was not gonna fall prey to this, but I've noticed how easy it is for us to fall prey to the, somebody who comes and gives you a big old flattering word. Uh, I always seem, feel a little ca uh, uh, cautious about that. But Jesus sees right through their scheme, verse 22. But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Um, uh, whose image and superscription uh, hath said it. Uh, pardon me, we missed verse 22, didn't we? Um, I was wondering, where, where, where's the question? Oh yeah, the question, verse 22. Um, that, you know, that after flattering, uh, we know you're amazing and awesome. Uh, so I, we have a question for you. Uh, is it lawful for us to give tribute or pay tax unto Caesar or no? Loaded question. Um, and Jesus um, answers, but he perceived their craftiness and said, why tempt you me? Show me a penny whose image and superscription hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, render therefore unto Caesar's, Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people and they marveled at his answer and, he, and, and they held their peace. <laughs> What was the deal here? Again, we kind of missed this. Jesus sees the issue of taxes um, was practical and spiritual for them. They would say, why should we pay taxes to the Romans? You know, you might say, well, they were occupying and they shouldn't have had to pay taxes. You could make that argument. But probably the bigger argument was, why would we pay taxes to someone who declares himself to be God? You know, the Caesar Tiberius at that time, uh, valid question. And when Jesus says, you know, uh, show me a coin, here's the coin that they showed him right here. This would be that, that coin. And the image there, uh, not such a nice looking guy. He looks like he needs a hamburger if you ask me. But um, uh, that's, that's uh, Caesar Tiberius, uh, who was the guy who was kind of, at that point, the Caesars were starting to uh, claim to be God and to be worshiped as God. So, the, you know, 
the Jews, they're like, why should we pay taxes? You know, should we pay taxes? It was a loaded question. It was a valid question. But one of the things you have to understand when Jesus answers this, he's not being flippant, but um, they, they didn't care what the answer really is. Uh, I'll show you that in a second. Um, if Jesus answered, pay taxes to Caesar, um, the Jews would be divided um, and maybe uh, they would start to say, oh, Jesus is just like all the others, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, they thought they had him if he would say, just go ahead and pay taxes. Um, it would divide the Jews. The zealots w wanted to destroy the Romans and, and they were definitely not pro paying taxes. Um, if Jesus answered, um, don't pay taxes to Caesars, the Romans would come and take him to prison. Um, Jesus doesn't fully answer their question, but he will deal with the real issue, which is more their ulterior motives. And, um, and, and he, he does that in verses 24 through 26. Um, you know, this denarius of the emperor Tiberius that we have on the screen there, call, uh, commonly referred, uh, referred to as the tribute penny. Um, so, uh, so likewise, us today, um, if somebody says, should we pay taxes? Uh, if you want to be, you just say, whose image is on the dollar? Um, oh, Washington, render to Washington. What is Washington's? <laughs> uh, when I was a kid uh, in Southern Oregon, there was a bunch of guys, uh, you know, kind of out back, uh, kind of crazy guys. And they put six shooters on their sides and they went boldly around saying they weren't going to pay taxes. Uh, to, you know, um, to Uncle Sam. Um, they all went to jail. Um, so it didn't really work out well for them. But, but um, as it turns out, Jesus' answer really wouldn't be heard. They could care less. But Jesus was, was making a, a point. Uh, now, I, I wonder if some people make too much of the point of um, should we be into politics or should we not be into politics based on Jesus's render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, given to the Lord what is the Lord's. People use that as like a life verse about our involvement with government and stuff like that. I'm not sure that's the point. Um, people make a big deal of it, but Jesus, his answer um, was um, not just to keep himself out of trouble, but it was the honest answer. Like, like there's greater things uh, that we should be thinking about. Now, did they care about what his answer was? No, let me show you um, a couple chapters in the future. Luke chapter 23, verses one and two. The whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow um, perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar saying that he himself is Christ the King. Is that, is that what Jesus said? Now these people were total liars. The people that heard him say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's what he said. But they said, he said, he forbade you. So, so they didn't care about the answer. That's an important thing. And they were giving false information. Um, um, and by the way, you know, this, this is kind of the way of politicians of the day. Uh, we, we hear people say things about others. And like, how do we know what's even true? What people said? Um, now with AI, they can make people say stuff that they didn't really even say. And it looks as real as, as anything. Um, I think we need to be wise uh, in these days of elections. You know, the issues are not taxes, healthcare, immigration, et cetera. Um, um, it's, I think it's a spiritual condition of our country. There's a spiritual darkness that is, um, that is something we should be praying about. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, I think some people are called to politics and, 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 and activity, and man, we should be praying for them. Those that are called to that kind of a, um, a job, especially if you're a Christian today in America, trying to, trying to make a difference, a dent, uh, that's a tough road to hoe these days. Um, but we, we should be praying about that. Um, at the same time, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, do you ever feel like America or this world is less and less feeling like home to you? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I don't. I wonder what Gen Zers think because this is their home. They, their 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 experience is, is right now. Um, but if you've lived like I have, I know an America that Gen Z doesn't know, and it looks very foreign to me. It's not very homey or cozy. It's very militant, ugly, and dark. And I wish the Gen Zers knew there was actually uh, another uh, type of America that I grew up in, and it was even corrupt back then. But it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. I can only imagine, you know, what my grandparents thought and, and the generations before, just watching things get darker and darker. Um, you know, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says, um, these all died in faith, 
not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that, that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And it goes on there in uh, verse uh, 15. Um, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might've had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Um, if you feel like America is becoming stranger and stranger and you're um, less comfy and less at home, that's probably a good thing because um, the Lord has a plan for us. Uh, we're not all gonna be Americans. We're gonna be heavenly, citizens of heaven. Um, and we should make sure and remember that. Um, don't forget though, while we're on this earth, we're supposed to occupy. That means to still be caring about what's going on here and busy about the work of the Lord. But we're also told Colossians 3, 2, set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth. Um, so I think Jesus's answers is you know, like, um, kind of saying, you guys care so much about your money, paying taxes, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Like if he is flippant about something, he's being flippant about your money. Uh, just give him the, if his picture's on it, give it to him, which is kind of cool. So what do we do about the things going on around us politically? You know, um, there's the agendas, you know, uh, we see all kinds of rampant, sinful depravity uh, around us. Um, I'm reminded of John 17, 14 through 15. I've given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. Um, this is what we need to be praying about. As, as the world hates us because we're trying to follow a biblical, Jesus-centered lifestyle, um, the world's gonna hate you the more we are followers of Jesus. And I think it's gonna get worse the further down the way we get through history until the rapture of the church. Um, so this is kind of important, but um, you also have to remember, you know, Romans chapter 13, um, verses one through seven. When it comes to obeying the laws of the land, we're told to do it. And I'm not gonna go fully into all that. We've done studies on Romans 13, but basically, you know, uh, uh, submitting to the powers that be. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, the powers that be at that time, Paul wrote Romans, Nero was in power and, and Paul's making that, we, they, we need to do what Nero tells us to do. Well, Brett, Nero wasn't as bad as Biden or Trump. Um, uh, well, wait a minute, uh, you need to learn history. Uh, isn't it funny that that, like, I, I think it's, it's funny to me that Paul says, uh, you need to submit to the authorities that are over you, Romans 13, one through seven. And you can't think of a much worse leader than Nero in all of the world's history. Like he, he takes the argument away from pretty much every people group for the rest of history. Um, Nero was the guy who took Christians, dipped them in hot, boiling hot wax in a torturous way of dying. And then after dipping them, hung them on street lamps and lit them on fire. And then he would shriek, riding his chariot nakedly in his gardens with these Christians burning on these posts. And he'd shriek with delight nakedly, Christians are the light of the world. Yes. He'd go down, this was Caesar Nero. Like um, Biden hasn't done that recently or, or, or Trump hasn't done that uh, recently. So um, we, you know, if you're ever gonna, now you say, Brett, is there ever a time though, Romans 13, you know, you're supposed to obey the laws of the land. I get it, but is there ever a time to resist the laws of the land? The answer is yes, but you should be very careful about that. You should make sure that um, if, if the, the laws of the land are requiring you to, to break God's word and sin against the Lord, that's when you have to stand up and say, I'm not gonna do that. Um, you know, like if, uh, let's think of something kind of that's not so uh, personal, you know, to you or Americans, but like in China, um, they, you know, they, they force abortion. Like that would be something I would have a hard time uh, ever uh, approving, even if they put me in prison or killed me or jailed me, because I am so convinced that a, a you know a baby in a mother's womb is a living being that God cares about and loves. And if they said, "Yeah, you have to abort your child," um, I just couldn't do that. I would have to disobey the law. Well, what if they threw you in prison? So be it. Like there's there's there are times where I think we are going to have to. I wonder if I wonder if you and I are going to face that maybe more uh, in the near future. Um, we, we, we got a little tiny taste during the, the coronavirus thing when, when they were you know, trying to shut churches down for long. Some churches shut down for a year and a half. 
Um, that was ridiculous. When Athey Creek stayed open with the, you know, the whole congregation, uh, no masks, um, uh, you know, we, we, some people said, Brett, you're not obeying the laws of the land. And um, to me, that, was, that wasn't civil disobedience. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just tell you right now, we weren't saying we're, we're, we're obeying God's word as, as much as we were saying, guess what? That's not the law of the land. The law of the land, the Constitution of the United States says that we have the right to meet and government cannot interfere with our religious liberty to meet as a church. And we stood on those grounds. And, and by the grace of God, the Constitution, Constitution held up and we were able to silence Kate Brown and all the minions telling us we were breaking the law. We had people leave our church. Um, yeah, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. We had people leave our church. I had staff members leave who said, you're breaking the law and Brett, you're a hypocrite. You've taught in your sermons to obey the laws of the land. Sure have, but um, we were the ones obeying the law of the land. And as it was, Kate Brown was not. Now, with all that said, there could come a day where the law of the land says you cannot pray. Let's just say, for example, or you cannot read your Bible. That's actually happened in all throughout history. There's been banning of the Bible. Um, I will break those laws because the Bible says, give attendance to the hearing and reading of scripture. Like this is something that we're supposed to do. So there, there are times where you will disobey the law, but it has to be clearly uh, in uh, total uh, you know, rebellion against uh, you know, the, the, the word of God, or then we're gonna stick with God's word rather than the laws of the land. Tricky days we're living in. I, I wonder, what are the next things? I think the, the COVID thing was just a test balloon to see how submissive the church would be. Um, we'll see how that goes. And you kind of, you almost get little tremors coming when you hear, see in the news, oh, another, another strain of this or another thing of that. You're like, oh boy, here it comes, you know. But we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, back to our text here um, in Luke chapter 20. Um, so now we have, uh, the, we enter the Sadducees, uh, the Sadducees. Uh, now, uh, who are the Sadducees? Some um, include them in the group of the, called the chief priests, um, but they're, they're actually a group like the Pharisees, but they believe in different things. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in miracles, and they didn't believe angels or heaven. That's why they were Sadducee. Don't groan, I did, if I didn't say it, you would have been bummed out. So um, <laughs> some of you, if you're weird like me. Um, but they were, they were kind of liberal in the sense that they um, took the Lord uh, out of the word and just very much kind of almost secularized everything. No resurrection, no miracles, no angels, the Sadducees. Um, but uh, they come now with their next sort of attack on Jesus uh, um, here. And uh, let's see what it, what it says, verse 27. Um, it says, and then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there's any resurrection. And they asked him saying, master, Moses wrote to us, if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, that his brother should take up his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Um, now, by the way, this, this is called the law of the Leverite marriage, Deuteronomy 25, five, that's, they're, they're referring to the Mosaic law. Um, think of that today, when your brother announces he's, he's engaged, wouldn't you wanna make sure uh, that she was like, well, let's, let's see who he's engaged to because you might be married to her someday. Uh, that's the law of the Leverite, that'd be tricky. Well, <laughs> verse 29, there were therefore seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took to her wife and he died childless. And the third took her and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. The next thing I would say is, should we start an investigation on this, <laughs> this, this woman? Uh, what a ridiculous example. By the way, this is a really dumb line of logic. You know, um, they're, gonna, they're gonna try to blow away. The resurrection doesn't exist because you know, they're gonna ask this dumb question about all these seven guys who had the, the, the one lady. And it's just a really dumb question. But can I just say, on, this is a serious issue. The resurrection is a very serious issue. 
And they're asking this really dumb question. Can I just say, and I know this might offend people, but have you ever noticed like the abortion pro-death, pro-abortion kind of uh, thing? One of the things they love to do is come up with these scenarios. Well, what about in a case of rape or incest, which is such a tiny fraction of what's actually happening. Millions and millions of not rape and not incestuous, not, uh, you know, these really extenuating circumstance sort of scenarios, um, but by the millions. And then there's this tiny, li- and they, they want to get the, all the pro-lifers, you know, stuck on, you know, what about the case of rape and incest? Now, I could talk about rape and incest in that situation, and that's a whole other discussion, um, but it's an important discussion. But, but let's not let them get into this ridiculous, well, what about this? When they're, when they're actually killing millions of babies um, without even giving a blink of an eye, uh, without, there was no rape, no incest. It's such a ridiculous line of arguing and reasoning. Um, I, hope you, I hope you see a similarity here. That, the, okay, so they're a little dumb scenario. So seven, seven husbands, all dead. Now, then it goes on, uh, verse 32. Last of all, the woman died also. <laughs> wow, what a happy little story. Therefore, verse 33, therefore in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, in the resurrection, whose wife then is she? For seven had her to wife. <laughs> we got him. We got him. It, what's his answer going to be? Like, because now, now you say, Brad, I don't get that. What's the problem? Well, the Jews, by this time in the first century, they were all recognizing God never really wanted polygamy and multiple, you know, especially when it goes with the wife with seven husbands. Um, they might have been a little more open to polygamy the other way, the husband with seven wives, which is still corrupt. But the idea of a wife in heaven having seven husbands, that would just be unthinkable to the Jew at that time. Um, and so they're like, we've got him because he believes in the resurrection. We don't. Well, this will be an unanswerable question. Whose wife shall she be? And they're quoting from the Old Testament law and they think their little argument is, um, is airtight. Um, I think that's, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of people that kind of think they've got us as Christians. Oh, I've got you. You know, these, these secular atheists, you know, college professors that are talking to the 18 year old students and, oh, we got them here. They're all just about as dumb as these arguments right here. Um, bro, you shouldn't do that. Well, let's, let's take a look at how Jesus responds. Verse 34, and Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, this is interesting. Um, uh, Luke puts it pretty calmly here. Uh, let me remind you what we read in Matthew because Jesus, uh, it's even a little more pointed the way he answers in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 29 through 31, Jesus answered and said unto them, you do err not knowing the scriptures. Uh, this is Jesus calling them out. You guys are dumb. You don't know the scripture. And you also don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, um, have you not read? And then he goes on. Jesus says they've erred from the very beginning of the question. Um, Now, I know that some of you are already thinking, you're thinking, oh, but Brett, we're newlyweds. If you're newlyweds here, you're like, oh no, I don't want the rapture of the church because then our marriage won't be married in heaven. We're in marriage or given in marriage. The old couple's like, No, I'm sure nobody's saying that. None of you would say that. But you're like, oh man, you mean we're not married anymore in heaven? Yeah. Well, um, no, that's that's not what we like. Now, if you're the young couple and you're saying, but what about my poopsie in heaven? And like, um, you know, I I, I wanna, well, here's the thing. Um, I believe that um, Jesus, you know, we have to take Jesus' word, you know, right at the, there's, it's like the angels, which seems to be, they're not married. Neither is there those given in marriage. Um, so the, then people, then the next question, Brett, will I know my husband or my, my wife when I get to heaven? Will I know them? I always like to answer, you're not gonna be dumber in heaven than you are now. <laughs> I think we'll know each other. I really do. I think we'll know each other, but, but our knowledge will be a perfect uh, knowledge. And by the way, um, if you love the marriage relationship right now, um, the, the best relationships we enjoy here on this earth pale 
in comparison to any relationship we're gonna enjoy in eternity in heaven. That's one of the things, you know, if you, if you are married, you, you know that marriage is hard sometimes. In heaven, that's, that's not gonna be, that's, it's not gonna be hard. We're gonna have relationships that are gonna be glorious and in so many ways better than the relationships we enjoy. So, so don't be bummed if you're newly married. It's all gonna be great. You're not gonna go, oh, bummer. I wish I was on earth longer so I could be married to my husband. Um, and, um, and then if you've been married for a long time, be of good cheer. Your relationship's going to improve. Uh, it's just not gonna be a marriage relationship in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. So rest easy. Uh, heaven's gonna be awesome. No more pain, the wiping away of all the tears, no worries, and relationships are gonna be better. Now, things we debate now, uh, all these non-essential doctrines in heaven, it's gonna all be revealed and make sense. These guys thought they had Jesus on this point of marriage and all this. But um, I, I sometimes wonder if the biggest arguments the church has in-house arguments, you know, the Calvinism and Arminian thinking and, and some of the debates within the church, I wonder if we're all just gonna get to heaven and go, oh. I wonder if Jesus is gonna say, you did err not knowing the scriptures. And we'll go, yeah, you're right, you're right. But we all think we know uh, everything. I think that heaven's gonna shake that out real fast. God knows, we don't. Um, and when we're in heaven, we'll all see, we'll all get it. Revelation 19, verses one and two. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. That's the thing we're all gonna be saying when we get to heaven. Righteous and true are his judgment. Um, so Jesus, we almost get a snapshot of that um, when these guys ask the question about the resurrection. Jesus is like, you guys don't even have any idea what you're talking about, about the resurrection. Um, you think you know, but you don't. Um, and so that's kind of an important part of this. Well, um, Jesus, um, you know, uh, continues there. Um, so there's neither those given in marriage, those in marriage, um, but verse 36, um, neither uh, can they die anymore. For they are equal unto the angels and the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord and uh, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living for all live unto him. Now you're saying, what is, what is Jesus saying? Jesus replies with this. Why does God say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac? Not I was when they were alive, but after they kicked the bucket, um, now I have to use it in past tense. The reason, I love this by the way, that Jesus, his answer is actually quite simple. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, meaning Abraham's alive, and we all know where he is. He was there in Abraham's bosom when Jesus said that. Remember that? We, we know this from our previous studies. Um, and he is the God of the living and he's not the God of the dead, uh, which is kind of important. Uh, Jesus draws attention to make sure we see the tense uh, of the things that were spoken there. Well, verse 39, then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask any questions at all. <laughs> like, 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 I love that. It's like, okay, we're gone. Uh, no more questions. We're, we're getting smoked here. Uh, pretty badly, uh, so they wisely uh, shut their mouths. But the problem is they didn't stop their attitude and their action against Christ. Verse 41, um, it says, and he said unto them, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then his son? Now, this is uh, easy for us to, in retrospect, but this would have been hard for them to think about. But um, when, Dave, when anyone calls out to Jesus as Jesus, thou son of David, they're acknowledging him as the Messiah, the Christ. Um, and in Jewish culture, you would never call a father or never, never would a father call his son Lord under any circumstances. But Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 verse one, where David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou in my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In a nutshell, um, how is David calling his son Lord? And the answer is because Jesus, the son of David is God. He's the only time in the Hebrew scriptures where you can get away with this. 
Um, this is another place in the Bible, by the way, where Jesus is claiming to be God. When David calls his son, the son of David, prophetically in Psalm 110.1, Lord, he's acknowledging that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Lord. Does that make sense? That's an important part of this. People that say Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh, they need to be a little more careful in the way they read because it's very clear when you read things like this. Well, verse 45, then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes. Catholic. And, oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I, I just added that, I don't. Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at the feast, which devour widows' houses and make for a show, make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Jesus is targeting the scribes. Why is he targeting them? Not the Pharisees, Sadducees, the priesthood, the scribes. Um, well, as it turns out, it's interesting. Did you know the scribes he targets? Because they were the longest lasting and the worst of the worst, uh, historically. Um, the priesthood would lose its power completely after the first century and they'd sort of cease to exist for a long, long time. The Sadducees dissolved because they went to all kinds of, if you study the Sadducee um, sect of religion, they all went to heresies and went into all kinds of weird stuff and they ended up sort of becoming nothing. The Pharisees, what happened to the Pharisees? Anybody know what happened to the Pharisees? Anybody? Many of them became believers in Christ and got saved. That's interesting if you actually study the story. Even in the book of Acts, we see some of the Pharisees uh, convert to Christ. Um, so. Some say the reason the Pharisees ceased to exist is many of them started to follow the way, uh, Jesus, after his death and, and burial and resurrection. I hope that's true. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's what really happened to the Pharisees? But that's one of the narratives out there. But the scribes were the ones to watch out for. And I think that's why um, Jesus warns the, of the scribes. And who are the scribes today? Those that take the scriptures and interpret it to fit their own agenda. The sign of a scribe is, you know, they, they like their position of power. They like having people uh, reverence them. They took advantage of their power. They wore long robes and, you know, looked fa more fancy and more holy than everyone else. Um, their long fancy prayers, they did it for show. And Jesus just says, watch out for these guys. Whatever you do, beware of them. Uh, isn't it interesting? He didn't say that about the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the uh, chief priest, but he did end this chapter saying, watch out for those scribes who are twisting the word for their own power, their own benefit. Um, we have those guys today. Watch out for them today. That's an important thing. So G Jesus continues in Jerusalem here, but man, we're just now four chapters away from the end of Luke and we're gonna see him start preparing for the cross next week. Let's pray together. So Lord, as we pack it up tonight, uh, I pray that we would... Uh, learn from the, so many things in this chapter, Lord, so many attitudes these guys had that we recognize in ourselves, propensity to try to be thought of as important, um, to be wise on our own eyes, um, thinking that we know stuff when we really don't. Uh, I pray that this chapter would once again humble us, Lord. You, you remind us that we need to humble ourselves in your sight and you will lift us up. Uh, again, Lord, we pray that um, we would have a heart to follow you and to believe. And Lord, for those that have a tendency to not want to submit to any authority, I pray that they would see the biblical models here of, of what it means to be humble and submit ourselves one to another. Um, these religious leaders thought they were so right, but they were, um, they were so misguided. Lord, keep us from that deception, I pray. So bless these, your people who've taken time to cover a chapter out of Luke tonight. May it bring good fruit in their lives and we commit our lives afresh to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.